Hello there and welcome back to the Cultureverse Podcast, the bi-weekly podcast where I discuss all things from the vast universe of popular culture. On the previous episode, I continued this series on the complete history of superhero cinema by talking about the TMNT franchise, as well as Darkman and the strangely endearing 1990 Captain America movie. But today, I wanted to discuss the infamous, the mythic, actually pretty decent for the time, the unreleased Fantastic Four movie and also the famous group's later adaptations. Up till now, I've tried to do this relatively chronologically, but I feel like covering all four of these episodes in one go is a better way to do it. Kind of just for the title, if I'm being honest. So this episode is going to take us from the early 80s all the way to today, but for the next episode in a fortnight, we'll be jumping back to start wrapping up the 90s. This is going to be kind of a big one, so let's not waste any more time, and let's just get to it. In 1983, German film producer... Bernd Eichinger of Constantine Film met with Stan Lee at his LA home to discuss purchasing the rights to Marvel's first family. Those rights were not up for sale then, as in 1977, Marvel sold the film rights for the human port specifically to Universal, meaning it was impossible to buy the whole family's rights at the time. But three years later, after Marvel had reacquired the human torch's rights, Eichinger made the pitch again. This time, he was more successful. See, at the time, Marvel was essentially hemorrhaging funds, and were flirting with bankruptcy. To offset some of that, the company decided to sell off some of the film rights for various characters and properties. This is why we have stuff today, like Spider-Man being a Sony property, and Disney having to straight up buy 20th Century Fox before they were allowed to use characters from the X-Men film universe in the MCU. When Eichinger purchased the rights to the Fantastic Four, and their surrounding characters, such as Doctor Doom, Silver Surfer, and Galactus. From what I can find, it was essentially for dirt cheap. The number I've seen floated around most often by most sources is $250,000 in 1980s money. The year was now 1992. The film rights producer Bernd Eichner, Constantine Film, currently held for the Fantastic Four, would expire by year's end if a Fantastic Four movie was not put into production. After shopping around the pitch to various studios and being turned down repeatedly over fear of what a film like this could cost, and for the fact that at the time, despite the success of Tim Burton's recent Batman films, superhero movies were still not seen as surefire paydays for major studios as they are today. We're now in September, and with his options limited and his window closing, Eichinger would approach B-movie legend Roger Corman after Marvel declined his request for a contract extension proposing that together the two produce a Fantastic Four flick with just a million dollar budget, and distributed it under Corman's New Horizon Pictures label. A screenplay would be, presumably quickly written, by Craig J. Nivius and Kevin Rock. These two had, as of yet, not worked on anything huge in Hollywood. Nivius's biggest writing credit was for a 1989 romantic comedy called Happy Together, starring Helen Slater and Patrick Dempsey. And Rocks was for the screenplay of the sixth Howling movie. Because, yeah, there's apparently eight freaking Howling movies, by the way. With their script, music video director Ole Sasson would be brought aboard to direct the project. The main cast of the film would consist of actor Alex Hyde White as Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards, Jay Underwood, and Rebecca Stab as Johnny and Susan Storm, respectively also known as the Human Torch and the Invisible Woman. The quartet, the, quartet, wow, the quartet of heroes 
would be rounded out by two actors. Ben Grimm would be portrayed by Michael Bailey Smith, with his post-transformation in-suit counterpart being played by Carl Ciarfalio? That's very Italian. As his transformation into the thing. They would work together to make sure all their mannerisms matched up. Two villains would be used in the film. The jeweler, who's for all intents and purposes, just the Mole Man, a classic Fantastic Four villain. I can't actually find a reason why the change was made, but regardless, that character would be portrayed by an actor named Ian Trigger. And of course, the film's big bat is Victor Von Doom, played by the son of famed actor Robert Culp, Joseph. Shooting would officially begin on December 28, 1992, only three full days before the rights would have expired on Bern Eichinger's uh, rights and revert back to Marvel. The shoot would last for less than 30 days and would travel between various locations in California. The crash scene for the spaceship would be shot in Agora. The Loyola Marymount University campus was used for a lab explosion scene. Team meetings would be shot at an old Pacific Stock Exchange building in downtown Los Angeles, and the rest would be shot on the Concord Picture Soundstage in Venice. The costumes, which for the time and budget looked very good, especially the suit for the thing, were designed by Reve Richards. Reve, not Reed. One story he recalled about designing them was about when he went to the Golden Apple Comic Book Store on Melrose Avenue in LA to buy some Fantastic Four comics to see what he'd be working with. These people in the store just swarmed me and said, you're going to be faithful to it. And I told them, this is why I'm buying these books. After he first, first explained to them why he was there, because as noted in the Batman episode, comic book fans have always had the capacity to be particular. Just another thing to further highlight the tight budget this film has, after filming wrapped and the movie entered post-production, composers David and Eric Murch would take $6,000 of their own money I personally hire a full 48-piece orchestra to help score the film. While all that post-production was going on, the marketing would start to ramp up. A magazine article in 93 would announce a release date for Labor Day weekend later that year, and that very summer, just a few months before the premiere was tentatively set for. Trailers would be shown prior to movies and theaters, and they'd even be put on home video releases of Corman's movies, Carnosaur and Little Miss Millions. The cast would then hire a publicist with money again out of their own pockets to help promote the upcoming movie. The film would be teased at a clip screening show at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles and at that year's San Diego Comic Con, getting people excited for the set to be released Fantastic Four movie. A world premiere would then be announced. It would take place on January 19, 1994 at the Mall of America in Bloomington, Minnesota, of all places. The earnings from said premiere would be reportedly donated to the charities, the Ronald McDonald House, and the Children's Miracle Network. But then, seemingly out of nowhere, the film's premiere would be halted. All of the film's actors received a cease and desist order from the producers demanding them to immediately stop all the promotion they were doing for Fantastic Four. And then, Constantin Films would go as far as confiscating the movie's negatives. As a result, the film would never see an official release, and still has not to this day. This is where we now have two conflicting stories about just what the hell was going on here. Some people have said that the movie was never meant to be released from the get-go, and was simply made so that Eichinger could continue holding on to the rights. 
Others say that the release was cancelled due to certain people involved with Marvel feeling such a low-budget film could do damage to the Fantastic Four property as a whole. Let's discuss the latter first. As stated, the one story goes that someone somewhere higher up in, within Marvel themselves did not want the movie to be released, out of fear that the rush nature of the shoot and the incredibly low budget could easily result in a poor film that could possibly be panned critically and flop commercially, which by proxy couldn't end up hurting the overall brand and popularity of one of Marvel Comics' longest running properties in the Fantastic Four. This person would then cut a substantial check to Eichinger, urging him to pull the film. The check must have been substantial enough, because according to this version of the story, that is ex exactly what happened. Roger Corman himself stated, We had a contract to release it, and I had to be bought out of that contract. Presumably, he was bought out by Eichinger, who used some of that big check from that Marvel higher-up. That Marvel Entertainment higher-up, by the way, was apparently Javier Rat, whose name will more than likely pop up again within this series. At the time, he was an executive within the company. He calls me up and says, Listen, I think what you did is great. It shows your enthusiasm for the movie and the property, and I understand that you have invested so and much, and Roger has invest invested so and much. Let's do a deal, because he really didn't like the idea that a small movie was coming out and maybe ruining the franchise. So he says to me, that he wants to give me back the money that we spent on the movie, and that we should not release it. Eichinger said this while recalling the conversation he had with Avi Arad that led to the film's cancellation. Arad later mentioned that while he was on a trip to Puerto Rico in 1993, a fan approached him after taking notice of his Fantastic Four t-shirt, and shared his excitement over Fantastic Four's upcoming premiere, a premiere he was somehow not aware of at the time. Concerned with how the film might hurt the property for the reasons I stated earlier, he said that he personally purchased the movie for, quote, a couple million dollars in cash, and without ever even seeing it, ordered all the prints to be destroyed in order to prevent its release. The other version of the story as to what happened with Fantastic Four's release is that there was never supposed to even be one. The movie was meant to be thrown in the bin from the jump, was only produced as a way for Eichinger to keep holding onto the film rights. This is easy to assume, based on the fact that he waited till the year's rights were up to start production, went to Roger Corman, famous for making films on the cheap, to help release it, and started filming only three days before the rights would have reverted back to Marvel. Stan Lee corroborated this version of events in, two th in a 2005 interview, insisting the movie was never supposed to be shown to anybody and saying that both the cast and crew were in the dark about the plan to scrap the movie. Corman and Eichinger both dismissed these claims, with the latter saying, That's definitely not true. It was not our original intention to make a B-movie, that's for sure. But when the movie was there, we wanted to release it. There is a third story too, however. In an interview with ComicBook.com just a few years back, Roger Corman would state, It can't get an official release. It really started with Bernd Eckinger, a German producer who had the rights to the Fantastic Four. He came to me, I think in October of one year, and said his option on the rights was going to expire if he didn't start shooting by the end of the year. And he said he had a $30 million budget, and he didn't have the $30 million. Could I make it for less money? I said, how much do you have? He said, I've got a million dollars. 
Cutting $29 million out of a $30 million budget is pretty extensive surgery, but we ended up making the film. Part of the deal was, he would have a certain amount of time to see if he can make a deal with a major studio. If he didn't, I would release it. But if he did, he would pay me some additional money. He came almost up to the period where I was going to release it. And then he made a deal with, I think it was Fox. And part of the deal was that he would not release the million dollar picture because it would interfere with what would eventually became a $60 million picture. So simply by contract, the picture couldn't and cannot be officially released. So that's it. To this day, there's no definitive answer. Roger Corman, Bert Eichinger, Avi Arad, and Stan Lee all had varying degrees of stories as to what it was exactly that happened. That would lead to the 1994 Fantastic Four movie going unreleased. Some of them even contradicting one another, and some of them even contradicting themselves. And with two of the four people being unfortunately dead, as Eichinger passed away in 2011, and we all know that we tragically lost Stan Lee, we'll probably never know with 100% certainty what exactly happened. They showed a total disgrace. No, they showed a total disregard for the people involved, said director Ole Sassone. We had a good film for what we had to work with, and honestly, I'm with Ole here. All the behind-the-scenes stuff really screwed much of the cast and crew over, some of which I'm sure were very excited and proud of the film that they managed to make together. I also agree with him on the second part. For everything they had working against them, some clunky dialogue, a bit of a soap opera aesthetic, the effects looking more early 80s instead of mid-90s, and just clearly being a B-movie all around, the final product is actually pretty damn good. How do I know that an unreleased movie is actually pretty damn good? Well, I'm glad you asked, hypothetical person who I hope isn't talking to themselves while listening to a podcast, and I hope thinks I can hear them. Well, see? Well, the film was technically unreleased, pulled, and apparently had Avi Arad try to throw any remaining copies through the gates of hell or something, it lived. Unbeknownst to those involved with dunking the film, bootlegs somehow got out. The director Ole Sasson to this day maintains that this was the work of a faceless rogue, but who knows? He might have Ryan Reynolds did. Regardless, cheap VHS copies would begin to appear at comic book conventions over the years, and they've been copied and slightly upgraded in pictures and sound qualities. Currently, there still hasn't been an official release, but the entire movie can be found for free on YouTube in pretty decent quality, just by searching Fantastic Four 1994, and you can still find bootleg physical copies if you know where to look. If you have an hour and a half to kill, check it out. It's really not as bad as it could be given the circumstances it was made under, and is with all sincerity a very good Fantastic Four movie. And with the Disney-Fox merger that recently happened, maybe we'll see an official release sometime in the future. I would like it physically, but they could easily throw it on Disney+. Plus. I, for one, certainly hope they do something like that. Also, if you want a much more in-depth piece on this story than I could give here, there is a 2015 documentary titled Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four, directed by Marty Langford, and featuring interviews with members of the cast and crew. And it's pretty great in its own right. On the note of that $60 million deer Eichinger made with Fox, as the new owners of the Fantastic Four franchise and film, Fox would begin developing their own film based off Jack Kirby and Stan Lee's invention in 1995, with Eichinger, Ralph, 
Ralph Winter, and go figure, Avi Arad, serving as producers. Chris Columbus, the director, not the crappy explorer, was brought on to direct and co-write a script with Michael France, who's probably best known for writing the James Bond film Goldeneye. Columbus would end up stepping down soon thereafter, though to focus on co-producing the film with his cleverly, his cleverly named 1492 Pictures Production Company, alongside Marvel Entertainment and 20th Century Fox. He would be replaced by Peter Seagal, coming fresh off his now cult classic comedy, Tommy Boy, but would himself exit the project by the end of that year. Director of the second Mighty Ducks film, Sam Wiseman, would then be brought into the director's chair by the end of 1997. Sam Hamm, who if you recall was the writer Tim Burton had replaced on Batman Returns, was brought in to rework the current script in a way that would lower the $165 million budget. In early 1999, with production of the new Fantastic Four movie taking much longer than it anticipated, Fox would sign a new deal with Marvel to extend their film rights for two more years. The summer 2001 release date was set, and Raja Gaznell would become the new director as Wiseman exited the project at some point. Gaznell would also exit the movie just as quickly as he entered it, as he wanted to instead direct the live-action Scooby-Doo movies. By April of 2001, Peyton Reed would sign on to direct the film, envisioning it as a 1960s space race age period piece, which just sounds so freaking cool. Twin Peaks co-creator Mark Frost would be hired to do the rewrite, and as promising as all this sounds, Reed would exit the Fantastic Four movie two years after he joined it. Explaining in 2015, I developed it for the better part of a year with three different sets of writers, but it became clear after a while that Fox had a very different movie in mind, and they were also chasing a release date. So we ended up parting company. Finally, this musical chair game of directors would end up when Tim Story was hired by Fox. Simon Kinnenberg, whose name you'll see pop up again in this series a little later, was brought in to do some uncredited rewrites on the script. Also, apparently, following the release of Disney's The Incredibles, which is honestly everything a Fantastic Four movie should be, actually, I think it might have just been a Pixar movie at the time, regardless, the crew was ordered to make some heavy script changes and add in parts that would need more special effects to differentiate the two films. At this point, I really have no idea how much, if any of the initial script that was wrote nearly a decade earlier, was still present in this final draft. The cast for Marvel's first family would consist of Ralph... Ralph? Welsh actor... Forgive this here, this is going to be the worst pronunciation I've ever done. Yon Gruffid? Eon? Yon? Lone? I, I think it's Eon. I'm just going to call him Gruffid. I think I pronounced that right. Uh, I'm very much not from Wales, as you can tell. Regardless, he was playing Reed Richards, or Mr. Fantastic. At the time the movie was being produced, he was most recognized for portraying Horatio Hornblower in the, in the Hornblower series of British television films, which I had no idea existed, but are apparently pretty good. Sue Storm, Invisible Woman, would be played by Jessica Alba, best known at that time for her lead role in the sci-fi series Dark Angel, for which she was nominated for a Golden Globe, and would win a Saturn Award. Although, Rachel McAdams, Ali Larder, Carrie Russell, and even apparently Christina Aguilera and Cameron Diaz were all considered for that role at various points in production. 
Years before he was a walking American flag, Chris Evans played the Human Torch, or Johnny Storm, and the thing Ben Grimm would be portrayed on screen by Michael Chiklis during his tenure on the excellent crime drama The Shield. The main villain, would, once again, would be Doctor Doom, depicted by Julian McMahon, who was most recognizable at the time for his roles on the TV shows Charmed and Nick Tuck. Shooting officially started in August of 2004 in Vancouver, British Columbia. With reshoots and all that, it would last until May of the next year. Fantastic Four would be delayed one more time, just by a single week though. It was to avoid competi competition with Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds remake. It would finally, officially release on July 8th, 2005. It earned $333.5 million dollars on a budget of somewhere between 87.5 and 100 million. The reviews were mixed at the time, but in recent years I've seen this film get rigged on a lot. And you know what? It's really not that bad. As a kid when it was released, to target audience, I loved it, and I still find enjoyment in it now. Is it amazing? No. Has it been taught since? Yes. Could it have been done better? Absolutely. But for what it was, it's a decent popcorn flick and doesn't do any huge injustices to the characters or the source material. There's also an extended edition of the movie, which adds a bit more character building for the cast and a short Hugh Jackman cameo. Fantastic Four in 2005 did well enough for Fox financially that they greenlit a sequel. Fantastic Four The Rise of the Silver Surfer would be the lone sequel in the series, and was released just under two years later on June 15, 2007. The entire cast would return with the addition of the Silver Surfer, who, surprise, is a big part of this movie. Norman Rad was played, by was played physically by creature actor and contortionist Doug Jones, and then voiced by Morpheus himself, Lawrence Fishburne. Tim Story returned to direct, and Mark Frost penned the screenplay once again, this time joined by Simpsons writer Don Payne. Payne would later say the film drew its inspiration from the Galactus Trilogy, issues 57 to 60 of Fantastic Four, and the Ultimate, Extinct the Ultimate Extinction comic runs. Now, just to, let's get to that uh, giant purple and blue elephant in the room. The film also featured Galactus, quite infamously portrayed as a giant amorphous cloud rather than the human-esque form they usually take in print. Now, while I'm not exactly a big fan of this depiction, I am going to slightly defend it. To my understanding, in the comic books, Galactus technically doesn't have a real form. They are just a cosmic force that takes the form of whatever planet it's about to eat thinks a god would look like. For us Homo sapiens sapiens, that would be a human shape with an elaborate outfit. Um, and so, for whatever reason, the film decided to depict Galactus as this pure force of nature, rather than what we're all used to. Personally, yes, I would have much rather seen Galactus depicted in all that weird purple and blue costume glory. But, I don't think the depiction is as bad as some people act over it. Bad, but not as bad. On the other hand, Silver Surfer's depiction is pretty damn near perfect. I say that with Silver Surfer being one of my favorite characters, and the rest of the cast are just as good as they were in the first installment. I'd even say Rise of the Silver Surfer is a superior film to the previous one, and is my favorite of all the movies featuring Stan, Lee and Stan Lee's and Jack Kirby's characters here. 
So, while these movies are far from perfect, and have some pretty obvious flaws, they're still enjoyable, at least in my eyes. It would earn a slightly lower return of $301.9 million on its slightly higher budget of $120 million. Still a financial gain for Fox, but apparently not enough so to warrant a third film to complete a trilogy. Fantastic Four 3, and in fact a Fantastic Four uh, 4, were at least being tentatively planned at the time the second movie was released. Tim Story had loose plans for these sequels, telling the Los Angeles Times that he planned on bringing Black Panther into the franchise. At the time, he was even reported the eyeing Beninese-born actor, horrid pronunciation again here, Jamon Hansu, for that role. Introducing this character was a slight problem, however, as although Black Panther debuted in a 1966 Fantastic Four comic, Fox did not actually own the film rights to him. Don Payne, the co-writer of Rise of the Silver Surfer, said he wanted to eventually add the Inhumans, Skrulls, the Puppet Master, Annihilus, and the Negative Zone to the Fantastic Four film franchise, and Jessica Alba also showed interest in introducing Franklin Richards, so ideas were clearly being tossed around. Despite all those ideas, and Checklist and Alba both lobbying hard for at least a third installment, nothing ever really materialized. Chris Evans would say about nine months after the second picture's release that we had all planned on doing another one. But if there was going to be a third, I think a week after the second one was released, we would have heard. It seems to me that the films weren't outright canned for any specific reason right away, but seemed to kind of just fizzle out before Fox decided to reboot. There wouldn't be another Fantastic Four film until Fox decided to completely reboot the franchise in 2015 with the release of Fantastic Four, or Fan4Stick as it's more widely known thanks to the film's strange logo that replaced the letter A with the number 4. Now, I'm just going to say this right from the get-go that this movie is really bad. As you've seen, usually throughout the series and on the podcast as a whole, I like to be pretty positive and find the redeeming qualities in even the least popular superhero films. But 2015's Fantastic Four is just really quite crap. But how did it end up like that? And can I manage to find any diamonds in the rough? Well, let's carry on, shall we? Six years earlier, in August of 2009, Fox announced they were rebooting the Fantastic Four franchise, just a little over two years after Rise of the Silver Surfer was released. Akiva Goldsman who you may remember as a writer for both Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, would be hired on pro to, produce the th to produce this film, with Michael Green attached to write. At this time, Green is more than likely known best for his work on small villain heroes, but he would later go on to write another film we'll definitely be discussing in this series, and one that I hope to discuss sometime in the future. For this original script, Adrian Brody and Jonathan Reismeyers were in consideration to play Reed Richards, and Kiefer Sutherland was rumored to be playing The Thing. At some point, that script was mostly scrapped, and Jeremy Slater was hired to pen another. While the director was being considered, Zach Stentz and Ashley Edward Miller were brought on to further work on that script after finishing working on another superhero script for Fox. In July of 2012, Josh Trank was hired as the film's director. This was only five months after he made his directorial debut, with the freaking amazing found footage superhero movie Chronicle, which I'll probably talk a little bit more about in a future episode, but just take my word for it and go watch it, like, now. 
The praise his low-budget film got was very much well-deserved, and it got the attention of Fox, who reached out to him so he could apply those talents to a bigger-budget Hollywood comic book blockbuster. Slater's initial Fantastic Four script had both Galactus and Doctor Doom as the main villains, with Doom being a spy who at some point became Galactus's herald, and eventually the dictator of Latveria, which honestly sounds like a lot for the first movie in the franchise, maybe saving that stuff. Regardless, however, when Trank was hired on, apparently, he was given enough creative control that he decided to mostly reject that script and substitute his own. Slater's script had a much more comic booky tone, and the Josh admitted he had a difficult time identifying with. Slater even flat out said, just freaking hated every second of it. Allegedly, Trank would purposely mess with any choices Slater made creatively by preventing him from meetings without his permission, and limit the amount of notes he got from the studio. Slater added, I never saw 95% of those notes, and he would leave the project after what, after what sounds like six months of BS. The following month, Seth Graham Smith was hired by Fox to iron out parts of Josh Trank's script. By October of 2013, Simon Kingberg was hired as a co-writer and producer. Simon had worked with Fox for over a decade at this point, and you will be told exactly how later on in the series. At that time, Trank said that the film was influenced by David Cronenberg, specifically Scanners in the Fly, inspiring his Fantastic Four's visuals. He also said that its overall tone would be like a, quote, cross between Steven, Steel Steven Spielberg and Tim Burton, which sounds like it really could have been awesome. Now, on to the cast. In January of 2014, with the script now completed, casting would begin. A gig of Reed Richards would ultimately go to Miles Teller, but not before Kit Harington, Richard Madden, and Jack O'Connell all auditioned for the role. Kate Mara, uh, Suarezy Ronan, Margot Robbie, and Emmy Rossum were all in consideration for the Susan Storm role with Mara landing it. In February, it was announced that Michael B. Jordan would portray the Human Torch, Johnny Storm, and by March, Teller confirmed that Jamie Bell had been cast as Ben Grimm. Sam Riley, Dom Hall Gleason, and Eddie Redmayne were considered for Victor Von Doom, before the character would be given to Toby Kebble. Mads Mikkelsen auditioned to play Dr. Doom as well, and allegedly walked out of said audition, calling the whole process mad and wrong. He later said that the one and only thing he was asked to do during his audition was to stretch out his arms as long as he could make them, which I think they might have been casting for the wrong role. The whole production was seriously riddled with problems. After casting Michael B. Jordan, a black actor, in the role of Johnny Storm, a character whose race has usually been white but has never been an integral part of the character's identity, a very, very vocal minority, at least I like to think it was a vocal minority, took umbrage and began sending death threats to director Josh Trank, who ended up sleeping with a 38 Smith & Wesson special on his nightstand. Trank would later explain his decision by saying that casting Jordan in the role of Johnny Storm was meant to bring the Fantastic Four in line with real-world demographics, which kind of makes sense to me. As long as a character's race isn't part of their overall identity, then... What the hell does it matter what ethnicity the actor is, as long as they're talented for the role? The director later, later admitted that he actually wanted to cast a black actress as the Invisible Woman, 
but allegedly the studio insisted on not changing her race for the film. He said, I was mostly interested in a black suit storm and a black Bonnie storm and a black Franklin storm. When you're dealing with a studio on a massive movie like that, everybody wants to keep an open mind to who the big stars are going to be. I found a lot of pretty heavy pushback on casting a black woman in that role. And would then go on to add that being pushed back against so heavily for this idea of a black suit storm should have made him leave the project then and there. Prior to, fan prior to Fan 4 Stick being released, rumors began to circulate regarding disagreements between 20th Century Fox and Trank during the film being made. After not liking his original cut for having a morose tone, Fox ordered changes be made to the film without the director's input and guidance. They would change and straight up cut major plot points from the original version. They still did not have an ending, and so Fox had to scramble and roughly cobble together a new one that was essentially composed of script pieces of the original draft and new bits that were being added up to and during the day of reshoots. Apparently, Trink's suggestions were for the most part completely ignored. Stephen E. Rivkin was hired to edit the movie together, with Trank later referring to him as the de facto director for this new horror cut. The movie would be theatrically released on August 7, 2015, earning $167.9 million on a budget of between $120 and $155 million, meaning at best it netted Fox $47.9 million, and at worst, a measly 12.9, and I don't think that the marketing budget was taken into those numbers either. This was not only a financial flop, but the film was completely wrecked by critics. Peter Travers of Rolling Stone gave it one star out of four and called it the, the cinematic equivalent of malware and worse than worthless. And while I don't know if I'd go that far, it's a, it, it is a very pretty looking film, and it had the best special effects out of any Fantastic Four movie, and you can tell there is some semblance of a good film buried somewhere deep within there. I do remember seeing it in theaters opening weekend, being a huge Fantastic Four fan myself, and genuinely considered walking out of a movie for the one and only time in my life. Doctor Doom actor... Tony Kebble later stated, I tell you the honest, the honest truth is, Trank did cut a great film that you'll never see. That is a shame. A much darker version and you'll never see it. Other sources claim that there was erratic behavior from Trank on the set of the film, which is what resulted in Fox's negative treatment towards him. And what could have only ever been seen as a great sign Trink sent out a tweet that heavily criticized the finished product just a day before its release, stating, A year ago, I had a fantastic version of this, and it would have received great reviews. You'll probably never see it. That's the reality, though. But he deleted this tweet shortly after. Well, Fox's president of domestic distribution claimed that Fox supported Trink's version of the film, he'd also blame this sole tweet for the movie's poor, poor box office return, saying, there's not much to say. I've never seen a confluence of events impact the opening of a movie so swiftly. Trank would then further disown the movie when he took it out of his Instagram bio filmography. After the unfortunate death of Stanley in 2018, three years after the disastrous release of Fan Stick, 
Frank lamented that he'd let him down. Even though after the film's release, he had received a personal letter from Stan asking him if he was okay. Last year, Trank admitted that he didn't ever get a chance to film some of the sequences he planned, thus making a director's cut practically non-existent and impossible. For a while after the release of this admittedly horrible movie, things looked very bleak for the future of Marvel's first family, but then, the Disney-Fox merger happened, and with Disney who owns Marvel, now owning 20th Century Fox, who held the film rights for the Fantastic Four, the rights were acquired by Marvel Studios, allowing them to finally appear in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which according to studio head Kevin Feige, as a move that is currently being developed. And as for a couple days before I was recording this, it was reported that it's currently being written. I, for one, cannot wait. My personal hope? I love to see Peyton, Peyton Reed's vision of a Greatest Generation Space Ace era Fantastic Four film finally come to fruition. And that's where I'm going to end today's episode. Let me know your opinions on all four of these films, and what would you like to see from a future installment. If you have any suggestions for subjects, or for the podcast as a whole, you could find me at cultureversepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the latest episode, and I'll see you all in two weeks for another discussion from the universe of popular culture, where we'll begin to wrap up the journey through 90s superhero films before we venture into the early 2000s.